Hello, this is Mary Christopher, and this is story time. This evening is Sunday, November the 29th, 2020, and we are starting a brand new book. This book is The Sword in the Stone, written by T.H. White. It's part of a trilogy about King Arthur, and in this first book, which we're starting this evening, um, we learn about Arthur's life growing up and his relationship with Merlin. We'll probably read two chapters this evening, and uh, this will be our book for the next several weeks. Okay, here we go. Chapter 1. On Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, it was court hand and simuli logicales. That's Latin for something. While the rest of the week, it was the organon, repetition, and astrology. The governess was always getting muddled about her with her astrolabe, and when she got specially muddled, she would take it out of the wart by wrapping his knuckles. She did not wrap Kay's knuckles because when Kay grew older, he would be Sir Kay, the master of the estate. The wart was called the wart because it was more because it more or less rhymed with art, which was short for his real name, Arthur. Kay had given him the nickname Kay was not called anything but Kay, as he was too dignified to have a nickname, and would have flown into a passion if anybody had tried to give him one. The governess had red hair and some mysterious wound from which she derived a lot of prestige by showing it to all the women of the castle behind closed doors. It was believed to be where she sat down, and to have been caused by sitting on some armor at a picnic by mistake. Eventually, she offered to show it to Sir Hector, who was Kay's father, had his, who was a Kay's father, had hysterics and was sent away. They found out afterwards that she had been in a lunatic hospital for three years. In the afternoons, the program was Mondays and Fridays, tilting and horsemanship, Tuesdays, hawking, Wednesdays, fencing, Thursdays, archery, Saturdays, the theory of chivalry, with the proper measures to be blown on all occasions, terminology of the chase, and hunting etiquette. If you did the wrong thing at the mort or the undoing, for instance, you were bent over the body of the dead beast and smacked with the flat side of a sword. This was called being bladed. It was horseplay, a sort of joke like being shaved when crossing the line. Kay was not bladed, although he often went wrong. When they had got rid of the governess, Sir Hector said, after all, damn it all, we can't have the boys 
running about all day like hooligans. After all, damn it all, ought to be having a first-rate education at their age. When I was their age, I was doing all this Latin and stuff at five o'clock every morning. Happiest time of me life, past the port. Sir Grummore, Grummersome, who was staying the night because he had been benighted out questing after a specially long run, said that when he was their age, he was swished every morning because he had to go hawking instead of learning. He attributed to this weakness the fact that he could never get beyond the future simple of Utor. It was a third of the way down the left-hand leaf, he said. He thought it was leaf 97. He passed the port. Sir Hector asked, Had a good quest today? Sir Grummore said, Oh, not so bad. Rattling good day, in fact. Found a chap called Sir Bruce Sauce chopping off a maiden's head in weeden bushes. Ran him to Mixbury Plantation in the Bychester, where he doubled back, lost him in the Wiccan wood. Must have been a good twenty-five miles as he ran. A straight necton? said Sir Hector. But about these boys and all this Latin and that, added the old gentleman, amos, you know, and running about like hooligans, what do you advise? Ah, said Sir Grummore, laying his finger by his nose and winking at the bottle, that takes a great deal of thinking about you don't mind my saying so. Don't mind at all, said Sir Hector. Hector, very kind of you to say anything. Much obliged, I'm sure. Help yourself to the port. Good port, this. Get it from a friend of mine. But about these boys, said Sir Grimoire, how many of them are there? Do you know? Two, said Sir Hector, counting them both, that is. Couldn't send them to Eton, I suppose, inquired Sir Grimoire cautiously. Long way and all that, we know. It was not really Eton that he mentioned for the college and Blessed Mary was not founded until 1440. But it was a place of the same sort. Also, they were drinking methaglin, not port, but by mentioning the modern wine, it is easier to give you the feel. Isn't so much the distance, said Sir Hector, but that giant what's-his-name is in the way. Have to pass through his country, you understand? What is his name? Can't recollect it at the moment. Not for the life of me. Fellow that lives by the burbly water. Gallopus, said Sir Grimoire. That's the very chap. 
The only other thing, said Sir Grummore, is to have a tutor. You mean a fellow who teaches you? That's it, said Sir Grummore. A tutor, you know, a fellow who teaches you. Have some more port, said Sir Hector. You need it after all this questing. Splendid day, said Sir Grummore. Only they never seem to kill nowadays. Run twenty-five miles and then mark to ground or lose them altogether. The worst is when you start a fresh quest. We kill all our giants, cubbing, cubbin, said Sir Hector, after they give you a fine run, but get away. Run out of scent said Sir Grummore, I dare say. It's always the same with these big giants in a big country. They run out of scent. But even if you was to have a tutor, said Sir Hector, I don't see how you would get him. Advertise, said Sir Grummore. I have advertised, said Sir Hector was cried by the Humberland newsman and the Caradoyle advertiser. The only other way, said Sir Grummore, is to start a quest. You mean a quest for a tutor, explained Sir Hector. That's it. Hick, hike, hawk, said Sir Hector, have some more of this drink, whatever it calls itself. Hunk, said Sir Grummore. And so it was decided. When Grummore Grummerson had gone home next day, Sir Hector tied a knot in his handkerchief to remember to start a quest for a tutor as soon as he had time to do so. And as he was not sure how to set about it, he told the boys what Sir Grummore had suggested and, and warned them not to be hooligans meanwhile. Then they went haymaking. It was July, and every able-bodied man and woman on the estate worked during that month in the field, under Sir Hector's direction. In any case, the boys would have been excused from being educated just then. Sir Hector's castle stood in an enormous clearing in a still more enormous forest. It had a courtyard and a moat with, a, with pike in it. The moat was crossed by a fortified stone bridge, which ended halfway across it. The other half was covered by a wooden drawbridge, which was wound up every night. As soon as you had crossed the drawbridge, you were at the top of the village street. It had only one street, and this extended for about half a mile, with thatched houses of wattle and dab on either side of it. The street divided the clearing into two huge fields that on the left being cultivated in hundreds of long, narrow strips, while that on the right ran down to a river and was used as pasture. 
half of the right-hand field was fenced off for hay. It was July, and real July weather, such as they had in old England. Everybody went bright brown like red Indians with startling teeth and flashing eyes. The dogs moved about with their tongues hanging out or lay panting in bits of shade while the farm horses sweated through their coats and flicked their tails and tried to kick the horseflies off their bellies with their great hind hooves. In the pasture field, the crows were on the gad and could be seen galloping about with their tails. The cows were on the gad and could be seen galloping about with their tails in the air, which made Sir Hector angry. Sir Hector stood on the top of a rick, whence he could see what everybody was doing and shouted commands all over the 200-acre field and grew purple in the face. The best mowers mowed away in a line where the grass was still uncut, their scythes roaring in the strong sunlight. The women raked the dry hay together in long strips with wooden rakes, and the two boys with pitchforks followed up on either side of the strip, turning the hay inwards so that it lay well for picking up. Then the great carts followed, rumbling with their spiked wooden wheels, drawn by horses or slow white oxen. One man stood on top of the cart to receive the hay in direct operations, while one man walked on either side, picking up what the boys had prepared and throwing it to him with a fork. The cart was led down the lane between two lines of hay and was loaded in strict rotation from the front poles to the back, the man on top calling out in a stern voice where he wanted each fork to be pitched. The loaders grumbled at the boys for not having laid the hay properly and threatened to tan them when they caught them if they got left behind. When the wagon was loaded, it was drawn to Sir Hector's rick and pitched to him. It came up easily because it had been loaded systematically, not like modern hay. And Sir Hector scrambled about on top, getting in the way of his assistants, who did the real work, and stamping and perspiring and scratching about with his fork and trying to make the rick grow straight and shouting that it would all fall down as soon as the west winds came. The wart loved haymaking and was good at it. Kay, who was two years older, generally stood on the edge of the bundle which he was trying to pick up, with the result that he worked twice as hard as the wart for only half the result. But he hated to be beaten at anything and used to, used to fight away with the wretched hay, which he loathed like poison until he was quite sick. The day after Sir Grummore's visit was sweltering for the men who toiled from milking to milking and then again until sunset in their battle 
with the sultry element. For the hay was an element to them, like sea or air, in which they bathed and plunged themselves, and which they even breathed in. The seeds and small scraps stuck in their hair, their mouths, their nostrils, and worked, tickling inside their clothes. They did not wear many clothes, and the shadows between their sliding muscles were blue on the nut-brown skins. Those who feared thunder had felt ill that morning. In the afternoon, the storm broke. Sir Hector kept them at it till the great flashes were right overhead, and then, with the sky's darkest night, the rain came hurling against them, so that they were drenched at once and could not see a hundred yards. The boys lay crouched under the wagons, wrapped in hay to keep their wet bodies warm against the now cold wind and all joked with one another while heaven fell. Kay was shivering, though not with cold, but he joked like the others because he would not show he was afraid. At the last and greatest thunderbolt, every man startled involuntarily, and each saw the other startle until they laughed away their shame. But that was the end of the haymaking and the beginning of play. The boys were sent home to change their clothes. The old dame who had been their nurse fetched dry jerkins out of a press and scolded them for catching their deaths and denounced Sir Hector for keeping on so long. Then they slipped their heads into the laundered shirts and ran out to the refreshed and sparkling court. I vote we take Cully and see if we can get some rabbits in the chase, cried Wart. The rabbits will not be out in this wet, said Kay, sarcastically delighted to have caught him over natural history. Oh, come on, it will soon be dry. I must carry Cully then. Kay insisted on carrying the goosehawk and flying her when they went hawking together. This he had a right to do, not only because he was older than Wart, but also because he was Sir Hector's proper son. The Wart was not a proper son. He did not understand this, but it made him feel unhappy because Kay seemed to regard it as making him inferior in some way. Also, it was different, not having a father and mother, and Kay had taught him that being different was wrong. Nobody talked to him about it, but he thought about it when he was alone and was distressed. He did not like people to bring it up. Since the other boys always did bring it up when a question of precedence arose, he had got into the habit of giving in at once, before it could be mentioned. Besides, he admired Kay and was a born follower. He was a hero worshipper. Come on, then, cried the wart, and they scampered off towards the mews, 
turning a few cartwheels on the way. The muse was one of the most important parts of the castle, next to the stables and the kennels. It was opposite to the solar and faced south. The outside windows had to be small for reasons of fortification, but the windows which looked inward to the courtyard were big and sunny. The windows had close vertical slats nailed, nailed down them, but not horizontal ones. There was no glass, but to keep the hawks from drought, from drafts, there was a, there was horn in the small windows. At one end of the mews, there was a little fireplace and a kind of snuggery, like the place in a saddle room where the grooms sit to clean their tack on wet nights after fox hunting. Here, there were a couple of stools, a cauldron, a bench with all sorts of small knives and surgical instruments, and some shelves with pots on them. The pots were labeled cardamom, ginger, barley sugar, wrangle, for a snurt, <laughs> for the cray, vertigo, etc. Et there were leather skins hanging up, which had been snipped about as pieces were cut out of them for jesses, hoods, or leashes. On a neat row of nails, there were Indian bells and swivels and silver varvels, each with Hector cut on. A special shelf, and the most beautiful of all, held the hoods, very old, cracked, rougher hoods, which had been made for birds before Kay was born. Tiny hoods for the Merlins, small hoods for the Tiersels, splendid new hoods, which had been knocked up to pass away the long winter evenings. All the hoods, except the rufters, were made in Sir Hector's colors. White leather with a red baize on the sides and a bunch of blue-gray plumes on top, made out of the hackle feathers of herons. On the bench there was a jumble of oddments, such are to, as are to be found in every workshop. Bits of cord, wire, metal, tools, some bread and cheese, which the mice had been at, a leather bottle, some frayed gauntlets for the left hand, nails, bits of sacking, a couple of lures, and some rough tallies scratched on the wood. These read, Cane's, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Harn, one, two, three, etc. They were not spelled very well. Right down the length of the room, with the afternoon sun shining full on them, there ran the screen port perches to which the birds were tied. There were two little merlins, which had only just been taking, taking up from hacking, an old peregrine, who was not much use in this wooded country, but who was kept for appearances, a kestrel, on which the boys had learned the rudiments of falconry, a sparhawk, 
which Sir Hector was kind enough to keep for the parish priest, and caged off in a special apartment of his own. At the far end was the Tercel Goshawk Cully. The mews were neatly kept with sawdust on the floor to absorb the mutes and the castings taken up every day. Sir Hector visited the place each morning at seven o'clock and the two astringers stood at attention outside the door. If they had forgotten to brush their hair, he confined them to barracks. They took no notice. Kay put on one of the left-hand gauntlets and called Cully from the perch. But Cully, with all his feathers close-set and, and malevolent, glared at him with a mad, marigold eye and refused to come. So Kay took him up. Do you think we ought to fly him? asked the wart doubtfully, deep in the molt like this. Of course we can fly him, you ninny, said Kay. He only wants to be carried a bit, that's all. So they went out across the hayfield, noting how the carefully how the carefully raked hay was now sodden again and losing its goodness into the chase where the trees began to grow, far apart as yet and park-like, but gradually crowding into the forest shade. The coonies had hundreds of buries under these trees so close together that the problem was not to find a rabbit, but to find a rabbit far enough away from its hole. Hob says that we must not fly Cully till he is roused at least twice, said the wart. Hob does not know anything about it. Nobody can tell whether a hawk is fit to fly, except the man who is carrying it. Hob is only a villain, villain away, added Kay, and began to undo the leash and swivel from the jesses. When he felt the trappings being taken off him so that he was in hunting order, Cully did make some movements as if to rouse. He raised his crest, his shoulder coverts, and the soft feathers of his thighs. But at the last minute, he thought better or worse of it and subsided without the rattle. This movement of the hawks made the wart itch to carry him. He yearned to take him away from Kay and set him to rights himself. He felt certain that he could get Cully into a good temper by scratching his feet and softly teasing his breast feathers upward. If only he were allowed to do it himself instead of having to plod along behind with the stupid lure. But he knew how annoying it must be for the elder boy to be continually subjected to advice. So he held his peace, just as in modern shooting, 
You must never offer criticism to the man in command. So in Hawking, it was important that no outside advice should be allowed to disturb the judgment of the Ostringer. So ho, cried Kay, throwing his arm upward to give the hawk a better takeoff, and a rabbit was scooting across the close-nibbled turf in front of them, and Cully was in the air. The movement had surprised the wart, the rabbit and the hawk, all three, and all three hung a moment in surprise. Then the great wings of the aerial assassin began to row the air, but reluctant and undecided. The rabbit vanished into a hidden hole. Up went the hawk, swooping like a child flung high in a swing until the wings folded and he was sitting in a tree. Cully looked down at his masters, opened his beak in an angry pant of failure and remained motionless. The two hearts stood still. Chapter Two A good while later, when they had been whistling and luring and following the disturbed and sulky hawk from tree to tree, Kay lost his temper. Let him go, then, he said. He's no use anyway. Oh, we could not leave him, cried the wart. What would Hobbes say? It is my hawk. Not Hobbes, exclaimed Kay furiously. What does it matter what Hobbes says? He's a servant. But Hobbes made Cully. It is all right for us to lose him because we did not have to sit up with him three nights and carry him all day and all that. But we can't lose Hobbes Hawk. We'd be beastly. Serve him right then, he's a fool, and it is a rotten hawk. Who wants a rotten, stupid hawk anyway? You had better stay yourself if you are so keen on it. I'm going home. I will stay, said the wart sadly, if you will send Hob when you get there. Kay began walking off in the wrong direction, raging in his heart because he knew that he had flown the bird when he was not properly in Yarrick, and the wart had to shout after him the right way. Then the wart sat down under the tree and looked up at Cully like a cat watching a sparrow with his heart beating fast. It was well enough for Kay, who was not really keen on hawking, except in so far as it was the proper occupation for a boy in his station of life. But the wart had some of the falconer's feelings and knew that a lost hawk was the greatest possible calamity. He knew that Hob had worked on Cully for 14 hours a day 
to teach him his trade, and that his work had been like Jacob's struggle with the angel. When Cully was lost, a part of Hob would be lost too. The wart did not dare to, to face the look of reproach which would be in the falconer's eye. After all, he had tried to teach them. What was he to do? He had better sit still, leaving the lure on the ground, so that Cully could settle down and come in on his own time. But Cully had no intention of doing this. He had been given a generous gorge the night before, and he was not hungry. The hot day had put him in a bad temper. The waving and whistling of the boys below and their pursuit of him from tree to tree had disturbed his never-powerful brains. Now he did not quite know what he wanted to do, but it was not what anybody else wanted. He thought perhaps it would be nice to kill something from spite. A long time after that, the wart was on the verge of the true forest, and Cully was inside it. In a series of infuriating removes, they had come nearer and nearer, till they were further from the castle than the boy had ever been, and now they had reached it quite. Wart had not been frightened of an English, would not have been frightened of an English forest nowadays, but the great jungle of old England was a different matter. It was not only that there were wild boars in it, whose sounders would at this season be furiously rooting about, nor that one of the surviving wolves might be slinking behind any tree with pale eyes and slavering chops. The mad and wicked animals were not the only inhabitants of the crowded gloom. When men themselves became wicked, they took refuge there, outlaws cunning and bloody as the gore crow, and as persecuted. The wart thought particularly of a man named Watt, whose name the cottagers used to frighten their children. They had once lived in Sir Hector's village, and the wart could remember him. He squinted, had no nose, and was weak in his wits. The children threw stones at him. One day, he turned on the children and caught one and made a snarly noise and bit his nose off too. Then he ran into the forest. They threw stones at the child with no nose now, but Watt was supposed to be in the forest still, running on all fours and dressed in skins. There were magicians in the forest also in those legendary days, as well as strange animals not known to modern works of natural history. There were regular bands of Saxon outlaws, not like Watt, who lived together and wore green and shot with arrows which never missed. There were even a few dragons, though these were small ones 
which lived under stones and could hiss like a kettle. Added to this, there was the fact that it was getting dark. The forest was trackless and nobody in the village knew what was on the other side. The evening hush had fallen and the high trees stood looking at the wart without sound. He felt that it would be safer to go home while he still knew where he was. But he had a stout heart and did not want to give in. He understood that once Cully had slept in freedom for a whole night, he would be wild again and irreclaimable. Cully was a passenger, but if the poor wart could only mark him to roost, and if Hob could only arrive with a dark lantern, they might still take him that night by climbing the tree, while he was sleepy and muddled with the light. The boy could see more or less where the hawk had perched. About a hundred yards within the thick trees, because the home-going rooks of evening were mobbing that place. He made a mark on one of the trees outside the forest, hoping that it might help him to find his way back, and then began to fight his way into the undergrowth as best he might. He heard by the rooks that Cully had immediately moved further off. The night fell still as the small boy struggled with the brambles, but he went on doggedly, listening with all his ears, and Cully's evasions became sleepier and shorter until at last, before the utter darkness fell, he could see the hunched shoulders in a tree above him against the sky. Wart sat down under the tree so as not to disturb the bird any further as it went to sleep. And Cully, standing on one leg, ignored his existence. Perhaps, the wart said to himself, even if Hob does not come, and I do not see how he can very well follow me in this trackless woodland now, I shall be able to climb up by myself at about midnight and bring Cully down. He might stay there at about midnight because he ought to be asleep by then. I could speak to him softly by name so that he thought it was just the usual person coming to take him up while hooded. I shall have to climb very quietly. Then if I do get him, I shall have to find my way home, and the drawbridge will be up. But perhaps somebody will wait for me, for Kay will have told them I am out. I wonder which way it was. I wish Kay had not gone. He snuggled down between the roots of the tree, trying to find a comfortable place where the hard wood did not stick into his shoulder blades. I think the way was behind that big spruce with the spike top. I ought to try to remember which side of me the sun is setting 
so that when it rises I may keep it on the same side going home. Did something move under that spruce tree, I wonder? Oh, I may, I wish I may not meet that old wild Watt and have my nose bitten off. How aggravating Cully looks, standing there on one leg as if there was nothing to the matter. At this there was a quick whirr and a smack, and the wart found an arrow sticking in the tree between the fingers of his right hand. He snatched his hand away, thinking he had been stung by something, before he noticed it was an arrow. Then everything went slow. He had time to notice quite carefully what sort of arrow it was, and that it had driven three inches into the solid wood. It was a black arrow with yellow bands round it, like a wasp and its cock feather was yellow. The two others were black. They were dyed goose feathers. The wart found that although he was frightened of the danger of the forest before it happened, once he was in it, he was not frightened anymore. He got up quickly, but it seemed to him slowly and went behind the other side of the tree as he did this, another arrow came whirr and frump, but this one buried all except its feathers in the grass and stayed still as if it had never moved. On the other side of the tree, he found a waste of bracken, six foot high. This was splendid cover, but it betrayed his whereabouts by rustling. He heard another arrow hiss through the fronds and what seemed to be a man's voice cursing, but it was not very near. Then he heard the man, or whatever it was, running about in the bracken. It was reluctant to fire any more arrows because they were valuable things and would certainly get lost in the undergrowth. Wart went like a snake like a coony, like a silent owl. He was small, and the creature had no chance against him at this game. In five minutes he was safe. The assassin searched for his arrows and went away grumbling. But the wart realized that, that even if he was safe from the archer, he had lost his way and his hawk. He had not the faintest idea where he was. He lay down for half an hour, pressed under the fallen tree where he had hidden, to give time for the thing to go right away and for his own heart to cease thundering. It had begun beating like this as soon as, as he knew he had got away. Oh, he thought, now I am truly lost, and now there is almost no alternative except to have my nose bitten off or to be pierced right through with one of those waspy arrows or to be eaten by a hissing dragon or a wolf 
or a wild boar or a magician. If magicians do eat boys, which I expect they do. Now I may well wish that I had been good and not angered the governess when she got muddled with her astrolabe and loved my dear guardian Sir Hector as much as he deserved. At these melancholy thoughts, and especially at the recollection of kind Sir Hector with his pitchfork and his red nose, the poor wart's eyes became full of tears, and he lay almost desolate beneath the tree. The sun finished the last rays of its lingering goodbye, and the moon rose in awful majesty over the silver treetops, for he dared to stand. Then he got up, dusted the twigs out of his jerkin, and wandered off forlornly, taking the easiest way and trusting himself to God. He had been walking like this for about half an hour, and sometimes feeling more cheerful, because it really was very cool and lovely in the summer forest by moonlight. When he came upon the most beautiful thing he had seen in his short life so far. There was a clearing in the forest, a wide sward of moonlit grass, and the white rays shone full upon the tree trunks on the opposite side. These trees were beeches, whose trunks were always more beautiful in a pearly light. And among the beeches there was the smallest movement and a silvery clink. Before the clink there were just the beeches. But immediately after there was a knight in full armor, standing still and silent and unearthly among the majestic trunks. He was mounted on an enormous white horse that stood as rapt as its master, and he carried in his right hand with its butt resting on the stirrup a high, smooth, jousting lance which stood up among the tree stumps higher and higher till it was outlined against the velvet sky. All was moonlit, all was silver, too beautiful to describe. The wart did not know what to do. He did not know whether it would be safe to go up to this night, for there were so many terrible things in a forest that even the night might be a ghost. Most ghostly he looked, too, as he ho hoved meditating on the confines of the gloom. Eventually, the boy made up his mind that even if it were a ghost, it would be the ghost of a knight, and knights were bound by their vows to help people in distress. Excuse me, he said, when he was right under the mysterious figure, but can you tell me the way back to Sir Hector's castle? 
At this, the ghost jumped so that it nearly fell off its horse and gave out a muffled bah through its visor like a sheep. Excuse me, began the wart again and stopped, terrified in the middle of his speech. For the ghost lifted up its visor, revealing two enormous eyes frosted like ice, exclaimed in an anxious voice, What? What? Took off its eyes, which turned out to be horn-rimmed spectacles, fogged by being inside the helmet, tried to wipe them on the horse's mane, which only made them worse, lifted both hands above its head and tried to wipe them on its plume, dropped its lance, dropped the spectacles, got off the horse to search for them, the visor shutting in the process, lifted its visor, bent down for the spectacles, stood up again as the visor shut once more, and exclaimed in a plaintive voice, Oh, dear. The wart found the spectacles, wiped them, and gave them to the ghost, who immediately put them on. The visor shut at once and began scrambling back on its horse for dear life. When it was there, it held out its hand for the lance, which the wart handed up, and feeling all secure, opened the visor with its left hand and held it open. It peered at the boy with one hand up, like a lost mariner searching for land, and exclaimed, Aha! Whom have we here? What? Please, said the wart, I am a boy whose guardian is Sir Hector. Charming fella, said the knight, never met him in me life. Can you tell me the way back to his castle? Faintest idea. Stranger in these parts meself. I am lost, said the wart. Funny thing about that. Now I have been lost for seventeen years. Name of King Pelamore. Pelinor, continued the knight. May have heard of me, what? The visor shut with a pop, like an echo to the to the what, but was opened again immediately. Seventeen years ago come Michaelmas, and been after the questing beast ever since. Boring, very. I should think it would be, said the wart, who had never heard of King Pelinor, nor of the questing beast, but he felt that this was the safest thing to say in the circumstances. It is the burden of the Pelinors, said the king proudly. Only a Pelinor can catch it, that is, of course, or his next of kin. Train all the Pelamors with that idea in mind. Limited education, rather, fumets and all that. I know what fumets are, said the boy with interest. They're the droppings of the beast pursued, 
The harborer keeps them in his horn to show his master and can tell by them whether it is a warrantable beast or otherwise and what state it is in. Intelligent child, remarked the king, very. Now I carry a few, a few mitts, I carry a few mitts about with me practically all the time. Insanitary habit, he added, beginning to look dejected and quite pointless. Only one questing beast, you know, so there can't be any question whether she is warrantable or not. Here his visor began to droop so much that the wart decided he had better forget his own troubles and try to cheer his companion by asking questions on the one subject about which he seemed qualified to speak. Even talking to a lost royalty was better than being alone in the wood. What does the questing beast look like? Ah, we call it the beast Gladysant, you know, replied the monarch, assuming a learned air and speak and beginning to speak more volubly. Now the beast Gladysant, or as we say in England, the questing beast, you may call it either, he added graciously. This beast has the head of a serpent. Ah, and the body of a libbard the haunches of a lion, and he is footed like a heart. Wherever this beast goes, he makes a noise in his belly, as it has been the noise of thirty couple of hounds questing. Except when he is drinking, of course, added the king. It must be a dreadful kind of monster, said the wart, looking about him anxiously. A dreadful monster, re repeated the king. It is the beast, Gladysant. And how do you follow it? This seemed to be the wrong question, for Pellinor began to look even more depressed. I have a brachet, he said, sadly. There she is, over there. The wart looked in the direction which had been indicated with a despondent thumb and saw a lot of rope round, wound round a tree. The other end of the rope was tied to King Pellinor's saddle. I do not see her very well, said the wart. Wound herself round the other side, I dare say. She always goes in the opposite way from me. The wart went over to the tree and found a large white dog scratching herself for fleas. As soon as she saw the wart, she began wagging her whole body, grinning and panting in her efforts to lick his face in spite of the cord. She was too tangled up to move. It is quite a good brachet, said King Pellinor, only it pants so and gets wound round things and goes the opposite way. What with that and the visor, what? I sometimes don't know which way to turn. Why don't you let her loose? asked the wart, 
She would follow the beast just as well like that. She goes right away then, you see, and I don't see her sometimes for a week. Gets a bit lonely without her, added the king, following the beast about and never knowing where one is. Makes a bit of company, you know. She seems to have a friendly nature. Too friendly. Sometimes I doubt whether she's really chasing the beast at all. What does she do when she sees it? Nothing. Oh, well, said the wart, I dare say she will get to be interested in it after a time. It's eight months anyway since we saw the beast at all, said King Pellinor. The poor fellow's voice had grown sadder and sadder since the beginning of the conversation. Now he definitely began to snuffle. It is the curse of the Pellinors, he exclaimed, always mollicking about after that beastly beast. What on earth use is she anyway? First you have to stop to unwind the bratchet. Then your visor falls down. Then you can't see through your spectacles. Nowhere to sleep. Never know where you are. Rheumatism in the winter, sunstroke in the summer. All this horrid armor takes hours to put on. When it is on, it's either frying or freezing, and it gets rusty. You have to sit up all night polishing the stuff. Oh, how I do wish I had a nice house of my own to live in. A house with beds in it and real pillows and sheets. If I was rich, that's what I would buy. A nice bed with a nice pillow and a nice sheet that you could lie in. Then I would put this beastly horse in a meadow and tell that beastly bratchet to run away and play and throw all this beastly armor out of the window and let the beastly beast go and chase himself. That I would. If you could show me the way home, said the wart craftily, I am sure Sir Hector would put you up in a bed for the night. Do you really mean it? cried the king in a bed. A feather bed. King Pellinor's eyes grew round as saucers. A feather bed, he repeated slowly. Would it have pillows? Down pillows. Down pillows? whispered the king, holding his breath, then letting it out in one rush. What a lovely house your gentleman must have. I do not think it is more than two hours away, said the wart, following up his advantage. And did this gentleman really send you out to invite me in? He had forgotten about the wart being lost. How nice of him, how very nice of him, I do think. What? He will be pleased to see us, said the wart truthfully. Oh, how nice of him, exclaimed the king again, 
beginning to bustle about with his various trappings. And what a lovely gentleman he must be to have a feather bed. I suppose I should have to share it with somebody, he added doubtfully. You could have one of your own. A feather bed of one's very own, the sheets and a pillow, perhaps even two pillows, or a pillow and a bolster, and no need to get up in time for breakfast. Does your guardian get up in time for breakfast? Never, said the wart. Fleas in the bed? Not one. Well, said King Pellinor, it does sound too nice for words, I must say. A feather bed and none of those fumets for ever so long. How long did you say it would take us to get there? Two hours, said the wart, but he had to shout the second of these words, for the sounds were drowned in his mouth by a noise which had that moment risen close beside them. What was that? exclaimed the wart. Hark! cried the king. Mercy! It is the beast! And immediately the loving huntsman had forgotten everything else, but was busied about his task. He wiped his spectacles upon the seat of his trousers, the only accessible piece of cloth about him, while the belling and bloody cry arose all round. He balanced them on the end of his long nose just before the visor automatically clapped to. He clutched his jousting lance in his right hand and galloped off in the direction of the noise. He was brought up short by the rope which was round wound round the tree. The vacus brachet, meanwhile giving a melancholy yelp, and fell off his horse with a tremendous clang. In a second he was up again. The wart was convinced that the spectacles must be broken, and hopping round the white horse with one foot in the stirrup. The girths stood the test, and he was in the saddle somehow with his jousting lance between his legs, and then he was galloping round and round the tree in the opposite direction to the one in which the brachet had wound herself up. He went round three times too often, the brachet meanwhile running and yelping the other way, and then after four or five back casts, they were both free of the obstruction. Yikes, what? cried King Pellinor, waving his lance in the air and swaying excitedly in the saddle. Then he disappeared into the gloom of the forest, with the unfortunate hound trailing behind him at the other end of the cord. The End of Chapter 2 well, next week we'll find out what happens to the wart, to King Pellinore. We'll find out more, hopefully, about the great quest and the beast and the poor Bratchet. 
And what happens to Sir Kay? Well, next week, Sunday evening, story time, we'll take up with chapter three in the book, The Sword and the Stone by T.H. White. Have a lovely week. Thank you for listening. And let me know in the notes, if, in the comments, if you like the story.